Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as ever in our time together during this weekly podcast, we have got a lot to cram in. Uh, If it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect a bit on when prime ministers fall. Now, it doesn't happen very often, and it's not a prediction that the current prime minister is about to fall. But it is interesting to look at the required ingredients um, in terms of toppling a prime minister. It really rarely happens. Um, So if Johnson is in deep trouble, he is in a pretty freakish situation as a prime minister if he falls. But that will come shortly. Uh, Before then, oh yeah, brilliant questions this week. We've got some reflections from some of you on, oh yeah, I got a bit... um, angry last week, but I can't, I'm, I'm an actor like uh, Boris Johnson. And I'm so used to acting calm, you know, and just, oh, yeah, let's, let's make sense of it all and be very Buddhist when I do my analysis. That even when I'm telling you all I'm about to be angry, some of you said you didn't sound angry enough. Well, I am bloody, bloody angry about so many things. But I'm afraid I'm conditioned to act calm. So I'm sorry if I wasn't angry enough. But anyway, I was talking partly about the passivity of voters in England, actually, their tendency to vote for for outcomes that will actually impact adversely on them and then just to accept it and so on. Anyway, some really interesting responses as to why that is uh, from all of you. Some brilliant contributions to the ongoing debate about whether there are some virtues to be explored in co-payments as a way of funding public services where the user pays a bit depending on income and um, just as a way of getting more money into the system. And perhaps, although this is much challenged by a lot of you, becomes more empowered with that payment system. Anyway, some great points on that. You'll be all thrilled to hear electoral reform gets a look in in your questions and a load of other things as well. So that's still to come with my reflections on when a prime minister falls Uh, Before all of that, just a couple of announcements, if that's okay with you. For those of you who subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, thank you. And I've got some major news for you. The next bonus podcast will be with you later this week. And it's going to be, we're doing general elections for those of you new to all of this. And the bonus podcast coming to you uh, on Patreon is the 2017 general election. Uh, much requested to, and I was pleased in a way, because it's an election that came and went, and yet I think a hugely significant one. It represented a turning point in terms of a campaign that focused on the role of the state. Both the bigger parties did it, Tory and Labour. It was a campaign framed by two huge surprises. The announcement of the election by Theresa May, no one leaked it. It was announced the Tuesday after a sunny Easter weekend. And of course, 
at the other end the result, which was a stunning surprise with consequences that we are still living through today. Amongst many other things it did, it began to chart a path for the rise of Johnson and his and Lord Frosty Frost's version of Brexit, the hardest possible. And yet all kinds of other permutations seemed possible uh, when that result erupted around our bewildered minds uh, in 2017. So that's on uh, Patreon. And while I'm at it, um, there's another way where you can get the Patreon content. It's now available also via Apple Podcasts. And the link to that, if you want to get it via Apple Podcasts, will be on the blurb with this podcast. So that's an announcement. There are some uh, announcements to come on live shows, uh, but I'll wait for next week, if that's okay with you, to give you all the details. I'm going to the Edinburgh Festival, and tickets are already on sale, actually. Uh, there will be a daily show at the Edinburgh Festival for the last two weeks, so you can book those tickets now. I'll give you more info next week, but it's there on the Fringe website and other shows at King's Place Looming. So uh, more details next week, if that's okay with you, because we've got so much to get through. Anyway, for those who do subscribe to Patreon, thank you so much in 2017 coming your way at the end of this week. Now, since we all gathered a week ago, you can feel the mood shifting in terms of Johnson and his future. For this reason, that for MPs to even contemplating removing a prime minister is epic. And this Conservative Parliamentary Party is a curious mix. There are some so-called veterans. It's a term I don't use very often because occasionally, can you believe it? People say it of me because I talk about the past. It's not as if I was born in the past. You know, I'm still youthful. but um, So I never use the term normally. But there are seasoned parliamentarians in the Conservative Parliamentary Party. Uh, David Davis, who's been around, fought many political battles in his time, and people like that. Andrew Mitchell, who's uh, become a good friend of David Davis, although their politics is quite different on things like Brexit. But there are also vast numbers of new Tory MPs who are new to national politics. Um, and you know, from the Red Wall and elsewhere. And they're pretty new to the House of Commons because of the pandemic. They weren't there very much in their opening phase as MPs. And that means they are new to all the intrigue and machinations that are a part of parliamentary politics um, and are inevitably naive, Uh, conflicted, and suddenly and very quickly in their parliamentary careers, they are having to decide whether or not to remove a prime minister. And early on in this year, you know, it looked as if maybe they were going to make that leap and, uh, and challenge Johnson via those letters of no confidence to Sir Graham Brady, the keeper of the letters who never reveals how many he's got. And then it looked as if they weren't going to do so. And I think now many of them feel in a kind of limbo uh, with the May elections looming 
and their local activists working every spare minute they've got trying to get the Tory vote out. They don't want to leave quotes about their prime minister that could damage that cause. And so while I was surprised at the numbers who did publicly declare against Johnson last week, it was still pretty few. Many are waiting, I mean, partly to see the results of the May local elections, but that's a kind of cover, really, for just indecision and uncertainty. But what they are waiting for is for that campaign to end. So they don't alienate their local party members by providing quotes for their opponents as they spend every spare evening knocking on doors trying to drum up support. So there is that kind of limbo in place. By the way, this thing about, oh, if the May local elections are bad and so on. Under normal circumstances, May local elections midterm are bad for governments. And under normal circumstances, even really bad results can be survived by a government and a prime minister. Uh, Thatcher used to get terrible midterm election results. You know, even Ed Miliband got good midterm local election results uh, when he was Labour leader. So you can spin your way out of them. You know, under normal circumstances, midterm, have to take a tough decision, pandemic. And on they would all go. And you can see how they could spin their way out of these ones. Um, but will it work? What shifted this week is that MPs made a move to signal a degree of distance from Number 10's campaign to save Johnson under any circumstance. That decision to indicate to whips that they were not willing to vote against uh, Labour's motion or in favour of a more kind of meek government amendment, which was in an attempt, certainly for the short term, to block a parliamentary investigation by a select committee into Partygate, they weren't willing to do it. They had already been taken down this track. And in a way, this was an important prelude to Partygate when uh, Johnson tried to change all the rules about how conduct of members of parliament was judged after the Owen Patterson affair, where, if you remember, Owen Patterson was uh, condemned by various scrutineers about his uh, alleged uh, lobbying on behalf of a company. Johnson read, he didn't read any of the reports detailing what had happened, but he read a column by Charles Moore condemning those who were going for Owen Patterson. And John said, right, right, that's it. Enough of these rules. Remainers doing the rules. And he, he, on the basis of reading the column, wanted to overturn everything. The Tory MPs were whipped into backing a change of rules. And then there was an implosion and a a U-turn, and it didn't happen. And they weren't willing to do it all again to have their names on Labour Lib Dem leaflets blocking an investigation, uh, incidentally with a committee of majority of Conservative MPs, They didn't want that kind of plastered on posters in the years to come and therefore established distance. 
Now, that is quite a sort of psychological leap for MPs, not at all sure what to do, when to do it, how to say it, in the context of a prime minister's fate. Um, and that's why it was significant. They had leapt over a barrier. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to leap over the biggest barrier of the lot, removing him. But they will feel slightly more confident about doing so, having flexed a degree of muscularity in responding to demands made by the whips and number 10 last week and Johnson over in India having to sort of pull the whole uh, plan and uh, the whole strategy kind of collapse within 24 hours. When you combine that with what is inevitably going to be a corrosive sequence of further police report, police uh, penalty charge notices and the Grey Report and uh, the economic crisis, uh, the complexity of the relationship with Rishi Sunak, which we've explored before, not that Sunak now is a potential rival, he's not, you can see a potentially potent and combustible mix. And I am struck by the number of people I've spoken to in recent days, uh, uh, Tory MPs, Labour MPs, very experienced political journalists who think Johnson will be gone by the summer, uh, certainly by the July. Now, before I explore what brings about a fall of a prime minister, here's a very important qualification. I've said it on here before in a different context, I think, when I was raising the themes of my recent book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had. Prime ministers are rarely toppled. They lose general elections and resign. That is quite common. Or they lose a Brexit referendum and resign. Uh, that isn't common because it's only happened once uh, with Cameron. Harold Wilson, when he held a, a Brexit referendum, won it. Obviously, they are forced out by the electorate. But by their own parties, there are two really interesting examples. One that worked and one that didn't. Uh, obviously, the one that worked was Thatcher. But it was not really in that dramatic autumn of 1990 a sort of parliamentary coup that did it. It was absolutely carried out at cabinet level at every phase of the sequence, really. In other words, the sequence was Geoffrey Howe's resignation from the cabinet, which was dramatic in itself. There he had been with her from really the beginning of her leadership. He was shadow chancellor, chancellor, foreign secretary, and so on. But she had humiliated by the end of his time, and he they got on terribly at a personal level by the end. And in fact, they didn't get on brilliantly at a personal level at any stage, but there was a unquestionably, fantastically rich relationship between Thatcher's election as Tory leader in 75 and the early 80s as they danced awkwardly around their support for various forms of monetarism. But he resigned. Then we had his famous resignation speech. MPs, by the way, were not, prior to all of this, 
conspiring in the way that, to some extent, they are now, even. Uh, But then the resignation speech uh, was the absolutely, and, and, and framed to do so, the moment when Michael Heseltine could finally make his challenge on Thatcher. There was a leadership contest. Famously, Thatcher didn't get enough votes. So at that point, MPs stirred because not enough of them were willing to give them uh, their backing. But it was again then the cabinet that famously, one by one in that Shakespearean scene, met her after the first ballot and told her she should go. So it was very much a high-level removal. And there is no sign of that at the moment with this much less substantial cabinet. And there is no sign yet of a Hesseltine figure on the back benches willing to play that role. Because remember, Hesseltine did not seize the crown at the end of the sequence. For sure, Jeremy Hunt is there wanting it. I'm told he's about to publish a really interesting book about a particular theme he pursued when he was health secretary. But of course, much more than that, he wants it, but he has to be very careful about showing he wants it. Um, But he's not Hesseltine, who waited many years to make that move. So it was a kind of top-level thing. And if you look at this cabinet, uh, every time there is a drama with Johnson, they are all willing to humiliate themselves by going on to various media outlets to get into all kinds of contortions about whether he broke the law, whether he knew he was doing so, whether he knew he was at a party, he didn't know he was at a party. Uh, they are all willing to do it. Some with total sincerity, uh, Nadine Doris, Jacob Rees-Mogg are devotees. Others with great doubt, but still doing it. They are the products of Johnson's patronage. Many of them would not be in a cabinet Uh, that wasn't led by Johnson, and they, so far anyway, are rallying. Now, if that changes, he is in fatal trouble. And we know that from the Thatcher experience. When the cabinet turns, the big figures, you can't really keep going. But that's not where we are at the moment. There's a really interesting parallel with um, what happened during Gordon Brown's premiership. In ways that were irrational in many respects, Gordon Brown was kind of subjected to more plots to get rid of him than so far Johnson has had to endure. And with much less cause uh, in, in the case of the attempts to remove Brown. Now, these were conducted at sort of MP level, Uh, backbench level, uh, former ministers involved quite often. Uh, There was a famous one in um, uh, very early January 2010, not long before the uh, general election. And that involved people like Charles Clark, Patricia Hewitt, and others. Um, Failed within hours of the attempted coup. They hoped David Miliband would make a move, and he never did. David Miliband was deeply ambiguous, then Foreign Secretary, about making a move. He was flattered about being seen as a potential Prime Minister, uh, but rightly saw the problems of launching a challenge against Brown, 
one of which would be there was absolutely no guarantee he would win if he made such a challenge. There were other attempts. James Purnell resigned from the cabinet, but that was a sort of solo effort, really. Uh, He did it unexpectedly. Peter Mandelson was then back in the cabinet with Gordon Brown, and they had to phone loads of MPs and ministers up to make sure they were staying loyal to Brown, and nothing happened. There were, again, rumours and all kinds of talk about getting rid of Brown, and they didn't. And it was all very odd. Uh, these MPs plotted in a sort of ineffective way. Brown at the time was facing the global financial crisis and responding with a mastery that no potential successor could have done. But they got it in their heads that he wasn't up to being prime minister. They had never, they, they resented the way he had treated Tony Blair. They were all on that kind of wing of the parliamentary Labour Party. And there were endless attempts to remove him. None of them succeeded. So it seems to me that backbenchers alone can't do it. There needs to be cabinet-level involvement in the final attempt to to remove a prime minister. Uh, That's what we learned from Thatcher and the failed attempts by kind of Backbench MPs, some cabinet ministers were aware of what was happening, but none of them in the end wielded the knife. And you can go, I've mentioned it before on this podcast, the endless speculation about whether Major was about to fall, about whether Harold Wilson was about to fall. They never did. Wilson resigned voluntarily in 1976, the only one to do so. Major carried on and lost the general election, being prime minister for seven continuous years. So, Even though I sense this uh, barrier has been leapt over by bewildered Conservative MPs and inexperienced Conservative MPs, there is not a guarantee that that means Johnson is doomed. The only thing that makes me think he may well be is not so much, oh yeah, it's all moving in that direction, because I say the ingredients aren't there yet. But it is the scale of the allegation. It, I mean, when you think that people were trying to get rid of Brown when he was doing well in responding to the financial crash, and these MPs have a prime minister who set the laws, broke the laws, lied about doing so. I mean, it's I, I've, I know I've uttered those phrases before on this podcast, but it it continues to kind of make me think, well, you know, if a prime minister isn't removed for that, when? You know, I know it doesn't happen very often, but when? But watch for the ingredients in the coming weeks. A lot of these plots fail, uh, and they hardly take off, actually. But the fall of Thatcher was dependent on cabinet-level insurrection. And it wasn't really insurrection. It was when she had done poorly, relatively speaking, in that first ballot. So, yeah, we're, we're in a phase of many moving parts. Yes, a barrier was crossed by those MPs, but let's see whether they are ready to make the move. It, 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 it involves bigness, There were people like Ken Clark and others of that weight involved in the removal of Thatcher. There was no equivalent in the attempts with 
Gordon Brown, uh, you know, which were all doomed. I could tell. I, I used to get calls from people like Charles Clark saying, you know, this one's deadly serious. Write it up as a, a column, you know. And I could see it was never going to work. And that one fell apart after a few hours. Anyway, let's see what happens in the coming weeks. It's going to be a an epic summer. And now we're going to go on to your questions. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. I should say at this point, because uh, getting lots of, getting hundreds of emails. But it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. Always thrilling when new emailers come in. That one has been given out, that email address, about 26 minutes into the podcast. So if you're running at the moment or rowing or baking bread, uh, you can make a note, 26 minutes. If you think, oh, what was that email address? That's when it was. It will also be on the blurb, by the way, of the uh, podcast. So to your brilliant questions now. Yeah, last week when I tried to convey my deep anger about everything, but kind of failed because I'm an actor, as I was saying at the beginning, and I've been conditioned to act calm in this podcast because I I sense it's the best way that we all have a conversation together. You know, you don't want me ranting at you. I'm so cross. I'm so, oh, bloody hell. It was really interesting. A lot of you responded to this thing, this question. See, I dared to say something that politicians can't say, which is that voters have quite a lot to answer for, uh, for falling for all kinds of nonsense in not just recent months, uh, you, you know, recent years, and could continue to do so, by the way. If Johnson falls, I mean, the pitch to the party will be way to the right of Johnson. For some, for a candidate to win, I mean Johnson on economics is 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 to the left of Cameron, Osborne, and any probably candidate in a leadership contest. So, and, but will voters then think not just I don't mean in the leadership contest, but the subsequent election? Oh yeah, they've got someone else new in. Oh, we like him or her. Uh, oh yeah, it's a change of government. You know, all the papers, not all of them, but most cheering for this new person. And, the, you know, a lot of voters who will suffer from the economic policies, which will be much less one-nationist than Johnson's, even though he foolishly appointed a uber-Thatcherite chancellor without realising what he was doing. But maybe voters will fall for it. Anyway, it, you know, so this is really interesting. Now, this uh, the first one of uh, these is from Neil Gwynn, who's from England but now lives in Scotland. His parents are still in England. These are his reasons for what he sees as a sort of what I called, I think, a passivity in um, the English electorate. 
these are his factors. The press. Uh, he says, my parents are centrist, natural, lib dems, but they buy the mail for the crossword and the headlines do seep into their narrative. It's really corrosive. They also watch the BBC News, which is incidentally heavily influenced by the Mail and the Times, and that's me speaking. Uh, they follow the headlines, but aren't interested in the deeper analysis. For instance, they watch the 10 News about Ukraine, but they have no insight or particular interest into why Putin invaded and the greater geopolitical and cultural reasons behind it. I'm going to interrupt again, Neil. Get them to listen to this podcast. We try and go deep and explain why things are happening. Tell them, drop the mail and each morning get a coffee, listen to the podcast and then do a crossword from a book. That might help. Anyway, back to Neil. Uh, During the pandemic, they received no analysis of approaches to managing the pandemic. Their response was no one else did any better. They had no idea how other countries were understanding uh, were managing the pandemic. I find it drives an insularity that means there is next to no understanding outside of this country. Uh, that may be an issue of being a significant power and you don't need to look elsewhere as you are dominant, possibly the same with the US. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think this insularity is is a big problem. I've heard so many people say, oh yeah, no one else did any better. You know, yeah, Boris tried his best in the pandemic. No attempt to question and and look elsewhere to make comparisons. Um, And so, yeah, wouldn't it be funny, by the way, if your parents do listen to the podcast, Neil, they say, oh my God, what is he saying about us? Anyway, but, but if they start listening, just make sure they don't hear this episode where your assessment of their insularity is being read out. I agree. He then goes on to add another factor, a culture of nostalgia and looking backward. Scotland, where he now lives, Neil, doesn't really do monarchy spitfires eulogising the Second World War. It does Remembrance Day, but that's about it. I visited my parents during Jubilee weekend with street parties and bunting. And now it feels culturally alien to me as bull running in Spain, uh, bull running in Pamplona after 25 years in Scotland. The trappings of British pomp and exceptionalism have no relevance here anymore, but it still does in England. Yeah, I I agree. We've got another jubilee coming up and... um, uh, and, and I'm just going to find it depressing, frankly. You know, the um, the, the kind of willingness. Always, there was a very interesting debate in the early 80s that uh, in many countries they're called citizens. We are called subjects, subjects of Her Majesty. I, I think you're absolutely right as to the factors that explain it. Thank you very much, Anil. Hope you're still on talking terms with your parents next time you go down to England. Why don't you go down for the next Jubilee party, Neil, and and express your disapproval to all those raising their glass to whatever. Leia Jewett writes, saying something that seems self-evident to non-Brits. Yeah, Leia lives here now, but is a non-Brit. Uh, a major reason for the English timidity and lack of anger boils down to two words, class system. With its deified monarchy at the top and lower down the pyramid, people socialise to be defeatist and above all deferential. Yeah, and it's interesting, I think you're also right about it's 
quite self-evident to non-British people who move here that there are curious powers at work that determine this kind of passivity and um, acceptance or or welcome of near one-party rule, for example, and all the other things. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for that, Lair. Now, Tom wonders. You see, he he refers. He so you so you're in despair. So you're 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 angry. You know, referring to last week's uh, podcast. And then he says, "So why are you opposed to PR?" I told you at the beginning we'd get to electoral reform. Those fans of electoral reform. Uh, Tom said, "I don't think I've heard you spell out why you're opposed to changing to a more PR system of voting. It seems to me under our system, all we have is long periods of Tory rule, very occasionally punctuated by a Labour-led coalition. I assume you mean a Labour being a coalition, because actually there aren't Labour haven't led a coalition in modern times. I can't think whether they ever have." But you'll tell me I'm wrong about that. Um, of course, there's been a Tory coalition in 2010, which soon moved from that to overall majority to landslide majority. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, look, I'm coming, I'm coming round to it. I really am coming round to it. Um, the electoral reform special, much promised. I'm just delaying it to tantalise you all. The more I think about it, I can see advantages. Um, so, but the, let's wait for the special. Venetia Kane, who's become the chief beanie knitter of our community, our cooperative that's been planned. We, we're threat. John Lewis is very worried. She gets angry. We're into anger now about how perfectly decent Tory MPs are forced to vote against their consciences on a variety of issues for fear, perhaps, of losing junior posts or even being kicked out of the party. Of course, there was that, that purge of the parliamentary party in the autumn of 2019. Those who wouldn't remember what their sin was. It's been forgotten. It wasn't that they were still manoeuvring for Remain, that lot. They were just demanding more time to scrutinise the withdrawal deal that um, Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost had brought back. And Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost wasn't having any of it. But it was interesting last week, Venetia, that um, they weren't willing to agree to what the whips were saying in terms of this, where they were going to publicly show their feelings towards a parliamentary committee investigating Partygate. That's why there was considerable significance in it. Anyway, that's, thank you. There were many other questions analysing kind of the English voter and attitudes. And I, to be honest, you know what? I'm more interested in doing a special on that than electoral reform, but there is, I can see how it all interconnects. In politics, everything connects. We're having this great discussion aren't we, about co-payments. And I've been bollocked by all kinds of people uh, for suggesting that this might be a means by which more money can be got into the NHS and potentially empowering patients. Now, I've had support from Belgium and indeed uh, France, where they say they, their systems incorporate that and are better than the UK. Um, but I've had uh, contact with the legendary Tim Bale, academic writer of brilliant political books, who gives this reason why it doesn't work. And it's very interesting. I think Tim did it as part of his PhD thesis. So this is another view as to why 
this is a kind of red herring. It's to do with who avoids going to the doctor and the long-term cost of not picking stuff up early enough. In my view, you can't separate the practical and the ethical in the way that advocates tend to do. Essentially, co-payments, especially to see the GP, always risk rationing visits to the surgery according to patient means rather than patient need. The less well-off, and let's assume we aren't talking about the very poor who would be exempted, yeah, definitely exempted, but the less well-off who are likely to suffer worse health anyway are significantly more likely to put off visiting their doctor than their better-off compatriots, meaning that when eventually they feel they have no choice but to go, their condition may well have worsened and therefore become more expensive to treat. In short, co-payments won't put off the so-called worried well, but it could well deter people who are ill and go on to develop even more serious illness, ensuring that any immediate savings to NHS care are swallowed up later. And that's before we factor in the cost of putting together an effective means testing system. I hadn't thought about that, but the deterrent factor means people will get even more ill and cost the NHS more. Uh, that, That's a a powerful argument again. So it'd be interesting to hear from our correspondents based in Belgium uh, what they think about that. Do some people in Belgium who have to pay, you know, who just go to the threshold where they have to pay, not go? Or is there a way around that? Thanks very much, uh, Tim, for getting in touch. Uh, Lucas wonders. Um, oh, Lucas says he listens to the podcast while playing video games to assist with his A-level politics. Yeah, well, Lucas, uh, perhaps not the video games in the build-up to the A-levels. You know, uh, just the podcast will get you an A-grade, no question. Uh, but maybe not the video games as well. Um, he says, should there be an NHS independent inquiry about how to fund it effectively and whether it can be made more efficient? There have always, uh, there was an independent, in inverted commas, inquiry uh, when Gordon Brown announced uh, the tax rise. He got someone else to do the inquiring into it. I mean, it wasn't independent, of course. Uh, it was a very clever manoeuvre. Interestingly, he got a banker to do it because in that pre-financial crash era, bankers were revered. And he got a banker to justify the rise in the uh, national insurance that he had already planned. But I have to say it was a brilliantly impressive sequence compared to the rushed national insurance uh, rise. The trouble is, Lucas, it's almost a contradiction because... These debates are so highly charged. Independence is quite difficult. Who you appoint to an independent inquiry will determine the outcome, I suspect. And finally, Hugh Carr. Oh, love the podcast. Will you be up here for the Edinburgh Festival this year? Yeah, Hugh. Last two weeks. And I'll give you the precise details next week, but the tickets are on sale. So see you there. Now, Hugh makes a quick point. It's another good point, actually, while he's cooking his lamb tagine. Hugh's always cooking lamb to Jean while listening to the podcast. I wasn't making consumers more interested and involved in the value of what they were getting, part of the reasoning for the poll tax. And you're right, it was. Thatcher's whole argument was this would make local authorities more accountable because everyone was paying. And I have to say, that bit of the argument 
is, a, is, is remains to me quite powerful. Now, obviously, they screwed the whole thing up. And on uh, the Patreon site, I'm going to do a special on cock-ups and look at more detail in poll t- the poll tax. But as ever, it w- it's going to really annoy you, that one, because there were some arguments that were quite powerful about the poll tax. But the, the fundamental one that everyone should pay the same, irrespective of income, was deeply and fatally flawed. But she was interested, Thatcher. She often wasn't, by the way, in the issue of accountability. She was about Europe and you know, got hysterical about it. And But she was about local authorities and accountability. She wasn't about the delivery of public services more widely. And it was quite interesting. Uh, but you're right, it led to a disaster. So there we are. You know, I kind of raised some things I thought were interesting about co-payments, but brilliant, brilliant responses. On to other themes briefly. Uh, Jimmy Smallwood, long-term listener, first-time emailer. Oh, that's great, Jimmy. I often listen to your podcast while hiking over the moorland hills of the East Pennines, surrounded as they are by red wall seats that will be hotly contested at the next uh, local then general elections. I was surprised to hear you. That was, what a lovely walk. Uh, great way to listen to uh uh, the podcast. I was surprised to hear you remark in the last podcast that Ed Balls can't come back to frontline politics and essentially there's never really any feasible way back for a politician. Uh, you cited Michael Portillo's return as Shadow Chancellor as more evidence saying it didn't work for him. But he served under William Hague, who after a short stint as Conservative leader then disappeared only later to return as Foreign Secretary. And he's, and you also point out that Michael Heseltine resigned from Thatcher's cabinet, but later became deputy prime minister, etc., etc. The difference is, Jimmy, that they all were in the House of Commons and they were all uh, very active still, big players. One of the things about politics is to seem significant, you have to appear to have now a future uh, within politics. And of course, the likes of... Uh, William Hague, who remained an MP and who um, took a lot of interest still in what was going on and spoke in the House of Commons and and then came back uh, into uh, Cameron's shadow cabinet. He never really left. I know he went off and played the piano and wrote books, but he was still an MP. That applies to the other example you gave of Michael Hestine, who was a huge player on the back benches. Now, Ed Balls, who, by the way, has ruled himself out of being the Labour candidate in the Wakefield by-election, um, he, he didn't want to leave politics, He but he lost his seat. And, he, I mean, his, as I've said here, his life is just weird. From a losing a seat, he's become a kind of national celebrity, dancing on peak time BBC One television and so on. But it is much harder once you've lost a seat, I think to come back. It's one of the reasons why I don't think David Miliband will be able to come back either. So, but thank you for that. Graham Lovelace writes, oh, Rock and Roll Politics will be my number one podcast. It's the earliest days of the pandemic. And I recommend it to all those wanting to understand what's happening. Thank you very much. 
I feel part of a community enjoying our time together. Yeah, that's the idea, you know, even when we're miserable, we can enjoy ourselves. On that point, I heard about Stuart's suggestion of a Union Jack sock factory. Yeah, Stuart's been in touch this week as well. Uh, run as a cooperative. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, Laundry Joe could run the dry cleaning and there'd be a network of artisan bakers across the country, sure will, making bread while listening to archive editions of the show. Yeah, well, that, they could produce many loaves doing that. But if it's all right with you, how about this as a money-making enterprise that can make us all oodles of cash? Introducing Steve Richards' Consequences, the board game for all aspiring prime ministers. Imagine a cross between Monopoly and Snakes and Ladders. Players start as MPs vying for the post of PM. Now, this is brilliant. I think that would make a great game. You know, like... Uh, Cluedo has endured through the years because who's done it? Is it Mr Plum in the loft or whatever? I think the scheming to be a Prime Minister is a brilliant theme for a game. We're all going to get very rich if this takes off. But but yeah, uh, let, let's, let's develop that as part of the cooperative and then we can celebrate with a slice of homemade bread and some homemade wine from one of... There's big whiskey drinkers actually in Scotland. Uh, we could have some whiskey as well. Thank you very much. Now, coincidentally, Stuart is back. He's the one who's um, offering, he's got me three pairs of Union Jack socks so I can be a walking tribute, literally, to Lord Frosty Frost. And Stuart says, you sounded dischuffed with the state of our politics in your last podcast, and I'm hoping the holidays have provided cheer. Either way, let me promise you, I have just the tonic waiting. The moment your feet slip into the cotton and polyester luxury of your new Union Jack socks, your frustrations will melt, melt away. I, I'm sure you're right. Um, I will be wearing them continuously because if there are three, I can wash two and you know, there's always one going. In seeking to make sense of it all, I want to make the case for the poor, beleaguered British electorate. Yeah, they're the ones who I slagged off last week. So, and suggest that they're not necessarily making the wrong decisions at elections, inconsistently handing the keys of number 10 to substandard Tory prime ministers. They've been arguably since 2010 electing the least worst option. As an example, I'd describe my politics as centre-right, very much with a social conscience, and pro-Brexit, driven largely by my view of the democratic deficit of EU membership. And I've always said, Stuart, you know, and I'll say it with my Union Jacks with even greater volume, uh, Union Jack socks, that there is a serious argument about accountability. There always has been, you know, uh, the so-called Benite argument, but there was a lot of nonsense spoken out around Brexit. Anyway, uh, he goes on to say, I voted for Blair, have no emotional attachment to the Conservative Party and recognise that having perpetual Tory governments is unhealthy to our democracy. I'm just the sort of voter that Labour needs in order to win elections. I'm not voting Conservative enthusiastically and there'll be a lot like me. Alas, Labour's offerings just haven't resonated with me and since 2010 the party has offered up a knacker Gordon Brown, an uninspiring Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn twice. In 2024 it's set to be Keir Starmer who, despite many personal strengths, in my view, hasn't shown sufficient vision or strategy and did all he could to overturn my vote to leave the EU. I wonder whether you agree about the lack of genuine uh, quality. I remain optimistic, put it down to the socks, as we have some great talent on both sides and indeed outside, for example, Andy Burnham. 
Uh, but in my view, the parties need to be much better at putting in only the very best forward as their leaders and potential leaders. Yeah, well, there were deep flaws in the leaders you have uh, mentioned, which we've analysed many times. I also think there were considerable strengths, and I think virtually all of you disagree with me about that in in some of the... Uh, campaigns uh, Labour have fought since 2010. I, to be honest, Stuart, you disagree, but in 2010, I think, you know, wherever you stand on the political spectrum, and I think historians across the political spectrum, for example, will decide Gordon Brown was a much more substantial figure than David Cameron. Uh, but you might uh, disagree with that as one example that you uh, cite. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm assessed by this thing of how you get mighty leaders. That book I wrote on prime ministers was looking at how this strange group um, surfaced to the very top. And it wasn't always based on an assessment of the qualifications required. But thank you very much for putting that uh, perspective. And we're going to meet at some point for a, an exchange of socks. Well, not an exchange, I'm not giving you any, <laughs> but I'm thrilled at the prospect. On Keir Starmer, Denise Willier's focus group of her mother, who is a Tory voter but is is not wanting to vote Tory, uh, her latest is that Keir Starmer needs to be more energetic and charismatic and there's a need for charisma. I kind of take the view, and I, I, I take it of him, that you can acquire charisma. I, I've said to you before that quote about Harold Wilson when he was quite a star in the early 60s. Uh, someone said to me, he learned to have a sense of humour. And he became hilarious. You know, he had the timing of a comic. Um, and he, he, he acquired a kind of charisma. So I think these things are still uh, possible. But it's interesting that uh, Denise's focus group, brackets, her mother, uh, raises that as an issue. I want to say we're running out of time. I want to say thank you to Robert Bromberg. He sent me some wonderful photos of his walk while listening to the podcast. It looks beautiful, Robert. And the last time you sent me photos, it was in the snow. So there's a sort of thing around it. He he wonders whether the accurate model for uh, Johnson is a sort of Orban, Orban figure or Trump figure uh, with uh, his various attempts to manipulate uh, certain things like the media and the way elections are being contested and so on. Yeah, I think there is a theme about the urbanisation of British politics, uh, which is quite worrying. Thank you to uh, Joe Thomas, who poses a very interesting question. Can you think of any post-war government, with the possible exception of athletes, that didn't possess a pathological hatred, distrust and indifference to local authorities? Um, it's a really interesting question, uh, Joe. And part of the problem with the whole of the UK is uh, weak local authorities undermined by government. And it's a, a catch-22 because central government doesn't dare give local authorities more power because they are so weak and they become weakened as a result of the refusal of central government to trust them to do things more. And although it's always fashionable to talk about devolution as a theme, we've got it in that levelling up white paper, no more money, uh, and, and, and these areas need investment. So uh, it doesn't cost anything, but will it happen? Because in the end, it's quite hard to give up control at the centre. It's a great theme uh, worthy of a whole podcast. Um, thank you to uh, Noah Keat, 
who rightly is sceptical about whether local elections are decisive if a governing party performs poorly. Um, I, I mentioned, I've reflected on that in the beginning, Noah, but you're right to um, be sceptical about this, that on Friday there will be something somewhere uh, that the Conservatives can extract and say, look, you know, it's midterm, we're not doing badly, but there's this. Uh, sorry, we're doing badly, as governments do in midterm, but there's this, this and this. Only, I think, if the slaughter is an unqualified slaughter, you know, will the pressure in that respect ramp up on Boris Johnson. I think the pressure, uh, no, I don't know what you think, is more to do with that investigation, irrespective of the May local elections, the Partygate stuff. And Dominica, our French uh, correspondent, Dominica Jewell, has been in contact with me several times. Her verdict on the televised debate was that Macron uh, won. Dominica has always been saying throughout that Macron would win this election, but that Le Pen performed better than she did last time. Uh, she's been in touch about COVID and noting the rises in the UK, which gets no press coverage at all. Oh, yeah. And on that, it's very interesting. I've, I've heard from the, from, uh, well, like, what do, the, what do we call them? My sources at the BBC. But some of their health people, you know, who are never off the television, are trying to get stuff on about COVID in the UK, but it's very difficult. They can't do it. It's sort of, you know, as if it's been decided it's no longer a story, when clearly it is in, in different ways. Anyway, there's some more questions. Thank you all so much. I've had loads this week and uh, uh, please keep them coming and I'll try and get through as many as possible uh, next week, um, if that's okay with all of you. Oh yeah, I'm always being told to say, could you please leave a review, you know, wherever you listen to the podcast? Uh, only only good ones, you know, uh, because they really help in reasons, as I've said before, that I don't quite understand, but I'd really appreciate that. Say thank you for subscribing to Patreon, those of you who are. It's the 2017 election next and yeah, more details about Edinburgh and other rock and roll shows where we can all get together live to make sense of it all. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Brilliant questions. Sorry if I didn't read all of them out. And um, well, it's going to be another really interesting week. And they end with those. Is it? Yeah, it's is it next week that I'm losing all sense of time? It's the week after, isn't it? The local elections. Um, but all kinds of things. There are, as um, I heard Neil Kinnock say the other day, many moving parts at the moment. And I thought it was a very good way to describe the uh, chaos of British politics that we all will get together this time next week to make sense of. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. See you next time. Bye. Bye.